That's the sacred part of the work. It's imaginal. Let me play my part. Check two eight. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like. I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Yeah. Girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to like create change. darkest, darkest things that people have dealt with over and over again since early childhood. Those really difficult cases are kind of where my focus is with mm -hmm. the foundation. Um, because I think those are a lot of the people out there who feel like they've tried almost everything and they wonder, like, Dorothy, is there anything in that black bag for me? Mm -hmm. And I want to be the one that, that says there might be something in there for you. Even though you feel like you've tried everything and it's not working. Um, like with Cal, a lot of things, a lot of the heartache for me is that a lot of the things that are supposed to be so proven and so effective would set her off worse. Like guided meditation would send her into a terrible state of mind. Um, we were trying to do it together, but she was so terrified of it because of experiences where that just would send her, she'd be in a flashback, she'd be gone. Mm -hmm. And that could lead to, you know, potential self-harm and other things we like that. We talk about that as contamination. So sometimes when we're trying to set up a calming place, mm -hmm something will pop in a person's brain and then all of a sudden what started as a very calm relaxing place becomes contaminated and so then we have to shift gears and use something different you talk about that a little bit more um for people who are experiencing that regularly when they're doing things that you know maybe they looked up on some top 10 ways to deal with your worst anxiety and they're just desperate they're googling things in the middle of the night um contamination what do you do so Tell me more precisely what would be happening. Let's say someone uh, is doing some kind of a guided meditation. Maybe they have an app on their phone. I'll modernize it. Um, uh, and they're three or four minutes in, and they're getting more and more nervous. And now they're getting uh, intrusive thoughts. And intrusive thoughts are leading to desires to self-harm as a distraction. And that's leading to, you know, obvious, the obvious fear. No one wants to self-harm. Um, but they're afraid they're going to fall into a flashback. And... If they just say, okay, screw, you know, forget this whole thing, I'm not going to meditate today, then they're back to the state that they were in that made them think, man, my baseline anxiety is so terrible, I need something. But they've gone in a circle now. It made them worse. Well, if all roads lead back to contamination, then a good strategy for a safe place would be to have the person construct one in their mind that is not based in any kind of real life experience because with real life experiences you always run the risk of thinking about something about that calm safe place that then all of a sudden materializes that makes it not such hmm. so uh, a person construct a place like if you were to construct a place in your mind's eye or an imaginary place, what would be the key elements that would be important to have in that? And so a person will come up with certain things that 
that really can't be tainted because it's imaginal. Or they can also think about a scene from a movie that that represents that, or they can think about a time when they listened to music and felt that. So there's different ways to approach that. For sure. Sounds like, um, and this is an uplifting thing that I think Kel was inspired by, safe to say, I think I can speak for her on that one. Um, the mind's ability and tendency to heal itself is very powerful, and we forget how, how strong we are and how powerful we are in, uh, as far as resilience. You know? Incredibly resilient, and that's true physically and it's true mentally. And, you know, I see it all the time in my work, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's the sacred part of the work. I know that there's always patient privacy, like we were complaining earlier. I was complaining about HIPAA and stopping me from some of the things I'd like to do, um, collaborating with clinics and stuff. But um, can you share any kind of, you know, anonymous examples of more of the success stories? So we talked a little bit about preparation for EMDR. We talked about trauma work is very exhausting. It can be very grueling, and to be prepared for that, I think Kel had a lot of increase in nightmares when it kicked off, but she was also, I was also seeing positive things, things that used to bother her regular tactile sensations that for her were horrible triggers were starting to lose their grasp on her and I was super hopeful and excited yeah. and then we didn't know that she was also you know filled with metastatic cancer at the time so I didn't get to see that if there had been a finish line mm -hmm. um, I got to see glimpses of it though and I hold on to those um, those moments where she got to enjoy a life experience that she would have avoided for decades before that. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. To be able to see that, and that is so hopeful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing that keeps you going, isn't it? It is, and I want to, um, you know, in my mind I'm always playing some alternative reality where she's well, and where would this have gone? You know, would she have been able to eat more easily? And if her body had been fed, where would she have gone with her music career? And on and on and on and all these ifs. But there's someone out there right now who, who needs this answer. So can you share some more positive stories about some turnarounds that you've seen, some recoveries, whatever you're allowed to say? Well, you know, there's so many different areas I've worked with where people have been able to manage their triggers in a healthy way. And whether it's the examples of people who can't get on a two-lane highway because they've been traumatized through car accidents or whether it's the little kid I talked about who couldn't be around dogs or listen to barking dogs without being traumatized or whether it's a person who has been physically abused in a primary relationship. Healing does happen. Healing does happen. And I see people who have not been able to be sexual with a uh, their married partner because of past sexual abuse go on to have fulfilling relationships, go on to be able to have children that they might not otherwise been able to have. Um, so, I mean, I see people heal a lot and I'm eminently hopeful. And sometimes when people are feeling hopeless, I I let people know that, you know, based on my experience, I am not feeling that hopelessness the way you are about what you're going through. Because I do believe that there is a way to get to a different place. That was going to be my next question. You kind of asked it yourself. Um, have you ever had someone walk through your door and you can see a better future for them than they can see for themselves? All the time. Yeah. 
does that it must feel good but at the same time you know they're not feeling it right now right so Part it of has, has to, go. to come incrementally yeah so you can see the steps from the despair to um i hate to say, i mean i guess we will we'll just reach for the stars maybe self-actualization like this person is living the life they should they feel empowered they're achieving the things they want to their potential isn't going to waste um getting wasted on some addiction right uh -huh. um they're not gonna you know hopefully die earlier than they should have um from all the different things that come with PTSD and, and eating disorders and addiction, this estuary is very dark, um, but you've seen people swim out of it. Yes, I, you know, and people, it's not, it's not necessarily, I'm always the one involved in that, but people will come to me and they'll say, I'm 30 years sober, and I say, wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Right. And, and maybe something's happened to them that, that has put them in a place where they feel their life is not empowered mm. they're feeling powerless over something and and i'll have them go back to the fact that they are 30 years sober mm -hmm. and it, coming from a place that felt so hopeless and desperate and like they were powerless over this addiction and they went from a place to that to being effectively managing that in their life and what a difference that has made that's a, just a simple example mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring it around to eating disorders for a second because that's a big focus for us. Um, the physicality of the work and how exhausting it can be is something that I saw, you know, um, with with Cal. And then also she was looking up online, is this normal or is there something wrong with me? Is it because I don't eat enough or this or that? Um, for people struggling with uh, restrictive eating disorders or anything where they may be malnourished, um, is there a, a recommendation that their physical health be at some kind of sustainable baseline before they get into work like this? It's kind of a chicken-egg thing, isn't it? It is. It's a little like the question that I'm often asked, does somebody have to be sober in order to do EMDR therapy? And how do they get sober if their mind isn't healthy? And it exactly. Goes, it's exactly. so hard. So <clears throat> I think the answer to which comes first is both. Hmm. So you wouldn't tell people to stay away if they're like, we never, I never list calories or pounds or anything like that. But if they're still like dangerous, dangerously restricting, but they're not in a hospital, you wouldn't close the door. No, I wouldn't. And I actually, uh, probably more than many therapists, I routinely ask what people ate and drank the day before they came to see me. You do. And whether it's the first time or whether it's throughout the therapy, at different juncture points because I believe so much in the importance of maintaining blood sugar in just as a basic element of health and well-being. I mean just that simple thing of maintaining proper blood sugar affects mood, it affects cognitive functioning, it affects one's need for sleep or not, it, af it affects how a person experiences a sense of hopefulness or joy. I mean, there's just that one simple thing. So hmm. it's common for me to just say, and you know, I don't tell people about diets. I don't work on any of that stuff. I just say, what did you eat and drink yesterday? And are you open to me making some suggestions that I think might help you in terms of this particular issue, which they're coming to me for? Mm -hmm. So I figure if they're coming to me for a particular issue and how they approach eating and drinking affects that issue, I feel like I perhaps have a buy-in to comment on it or to at least check on it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're part of a group of people that are 
you know, trying to help take responsibility for their well-being until they can do it themselves, right? So it must feel some sense of, I have a right to, to speak on this, right? Well, I, I, I think it's an important element of checking in with a person to know what their current state is in mm -hmm. order to know how to move forward. Have you ever just had to turn a session into something other than the full EMDR eye movements and everything because someone came in and said, I, ha I haven't eaten in two days? And you just have to kind of just say, okay, well, we're not going to do the most, the most difficult trauma work, but we can maybe do something else and see. You almost go into triage mode, right? This person needs food. Yeah, I mean, I, I have on occasion, if I knew somebody hadn't eaten and they were hungry, I, I might look and see if I have a stash of protein bars or something, you know, just something, especially if they're diabetic, or, you know, mm. I want to make sure that they're... So, yeah, I mean, you vary it based on the, the client that comes in. Can you talk a little bit more about nutrition and brain function? Well, it affects all of that, and especially uh, one's capacity to learn and retain information is affected by it. Hmm. So f that's why these children's nutritional programs are so important in schools. Free breakfast for kids. For kids. Yeah, yeah, for kids who can't otherwise afford that, um, having proper nutrition really affects how a child is able to learn and retain information. Does it help you wake up faster? Because I, uh, when I say wake up, I don't mean from sleeping, I mean from, hang on, it's morning, don't ask me questions, to like, okay, it's 10.30, I can concentrate, I can answer that tough question at work or whatever about those 10,000 emails. Because I have a hard time eating before like 8.30 or 9, I just, my stomach is not ready. And I wonder if that's because I stay a little bit groggy and if that's like, it keeps the wolves at bay. Well, you'll Does have eating to wake you up. You'll have to do a little experiment <laughs> make on yourself. Me test it on myself. <laughs> Run this that experiment all... and let she's, me know the results. She's making me follow up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'll have to put that on our Instagram. I've been eating an apple in the morning and it seems to be just the right amount. You know, okay. it's just a little sweet, it's a little energy, but at the same time, Waking up without Cal every day, I don't love feeling more alert. There's a part of me that likes that numbness, you uh -huh. know? And so I wonder with other people who have lifelong trauma, not just a specific loss, um, um, especially something unnatural, because as, as horrific as it is to lose a loved one, you can still trace it to something in nature, right? Mortality. Mm -hmm. So, but then there's like sexual assault. So then and the question that, is, how alert do you really want to be in this life? And it's like, you know, it kind of so reminds not me. Much. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of the caribou commercial, you know. Stay awake that, for it? Yeah. 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 When people wear t-shirts that say, be present, I feel yeah. like my t-shirt is, think about something else. Yeah. Because it is more of a, like, let me just survive this. Yeah. Okay, what I love has been taken from me. Um, let me just get through the day. The well, day being the lifetime. I think you're describing a grieving process and... Certainly, people's sleeping and eating patterns can change during gr acute grief. Mm. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so where were we on the EMDR? So, someone's had, you said, for for people with long-term uh, trauma from their early childhood, it can be many more sessions. Are there people who do this for years, and maybe they just yeah. take a much slower time with it? Yeah, there are people who will actually take a year or more to just get to a place where they can be able to do calm place, where they are able to have enough of those stabilization skills sets that they would be in a place to do the trauma work. 
because if you can't keep in the window of tolerance, there's a chance you can re-traumatize a person through doing the trauma work. So we want to be kind and gentle in the process. We do not want to do that. If anything, we want to err on the side of going slower. Mm -hmm. EMDR can, is powerful. It's, it's very effective and a lot of things can happen rapidly, but not all. And so you walk into it and until you know what you're dealing with, you don't know if this is going to be one to three sessions or if it's going to take a long time to establish a rapport and to reach a point where there's enough capacity to do stabilization and to stay in that window of tolerance that you can safely move ahead on processing. Mm -hmm. Do you typically do sessions once a week or with people who have more extreme situations, do you try to maybe bring in, uh, I guess, have less time between sessions in case of those really difficult, you know, things that do get drudged up? It varies per client. If somebody comes in to me and says they had a car accident and they drive for work and they haven't been able to go to work since the car accident, I'm going to up it. Mm. I typically see people once a week, once every other week. Uh, the once every other weeks are often people that are referred to me specific for the MDR work and they have other primary therapists. I like them to stay in touch and be active with their primary therapist mm -hmm. uh, while they're doing work with me. Um, I also, with two associates, pioneered the work on using uh, multiple hours of EMDR in a single week to see whether or not that was helpful. Uh, many years ago it was thought that you have to give a lot, a lot of time in between sessions or you shouldn't... Recovery? You should, yeah, mm. that people need recovery time. and. And so it was, you know, encouraged to maybe do a process session in between EMBR sessions. And then a colleague of mine and, well, a couple of colleagues of mine were involved in uh, treating people after Katrina. And I was brought into the research on that. Um, they did pre and post tests, and because it was an acute situation, they did six hours of therapy a week, two-hour sessions, three times a week, wow. and did pre and post tests. Uh, pre and post tests, and so I was involved in the research on that, and I subsequently, with them, presented that at the annual uh, EMDR conference, and we showed that on all measures, uh, there was significant symptom reduction. So that then showed that you could safely do multiple hours or multiple sessions mm -hmm. with a person in a given week. So, um, and it really depends on how you work with your client to make sure they're, they're in the window of tolerance and they have proper assessment and proper strategies for that stabilization that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Once you have that and you can see that, you can do multiple sessions. I have colleagues that have not wanted to go to people locally because they're too well-known. Uh, they yeah. want the privacy who will actually fly to other cities and they will do intensive EMBR sessions with a therapist in a different city. They'll stay at a hotel and they will do maybe three to six hours with breaks uh, over a period of days to complete an important piece of work and then come back. So. Most people I see, 
I do, I would see once a week. But there are occasions where time is of the essence. Oh, I have to do it more, like somebody who is, I work a lot with medical traumas, and if somebody has a medical trauma and they're due to have surgery and they need to have an MRI beforehand and they panic and they can't do the MRI, I'm gonna increase the sessions so they get to a place where they can have the surgery. Yeah, if there's a specific life event, you have to be, have to be functional for and be able to deal with it, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. When you talked earlier about consolidating memories, that was interesting. That's a phrase I haven't thought of before. Like, if I think of the most difficult things I've dealt with in life, I guess I never thought about where the memory is stored in my head and how I'm, how I'm thinking about it. I think about reframing a lot. Like, mm -hmm. think about this in a larger context of something good, and then the bad doesn't look as bad, or think about less Western and, you know, more of a dialectic type of approach. I never thought about consolidation of memories. Um, can you get a little bit deeper into what that meant? Consolidation of memory means that memory gets stored in a narrative form or that it gets stored in a way that it is not presenting activation as though you're re-experiencing the memory now that happened some time ago. Okay. So you still know, so let's say you've had an experience of a traumatic incident when the memory isn't consolidated, you're going to have most likely intrusive thoughts. You might have nightmares. You might have triggers that once you're triggered about this event, cause you to have uh, somatic symptoms such as heart palpitations, such as breathing heavy, sweating, turning red, feeling a panic attack coming on. That is a sign that the memory is not consolidated. In other words, it is still located in the part of your brain that's the, the subcortical area where you would experience it more in the form of emotions and body sensations. Once a memory is consolidated, you see a deactivation of that. So you're not going to get that, that rapid breathing when you think about the memory. You're not going to get that emotional angst or whatever is associated with that traumatic event you're still going to know it occurred but it's good i explain it to people it's a little like your experience is like a photograph that you store in a photo album that you put in a box and you store in the back shelf of a closet you go by you know it's there but mm -hmm. it's not screaming at you it's not in your face and it's not being brought into your daily life so what is the purpose uh i guess i'm trying to think like in terms of biological or evolutionary biology, what is the purpose of that state of mind where you trip over something again and again and again? Is it, I guess I'm picturing if, you know, if there's a, we talked about the snake in the woods. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so that you know to be afraid of that so that if you see a snake, you step away from it. So yeah. I guess there's a purpose to fear, but when you see someone you love and you know they've been struggling for decades with something that you can't do anything about it, it happened ages ago and it just still owns them it's just, uh, yeah, it's a heartbreaking thing to see, and you start to wonder intellectually, like, what what purpose is this horror serving in this person's life? Why doesn't the mind naturally... Um, why, why don't we heal better from trauma without having to go out and find all this help, you know? It's just, it's such a difficult thing. I guess there's got to be some kind of a... Um, like an evolutionary purpose to, the, to that fear response in the amygdala and all that that we were talking about. Well, the evolutionary person 
purpose of that is to help us manage dangerous situations. And the thing is with trauma, uh, it just gets locked in. So instead of coming on board when we need it, it's kind of omnipresent and it's a, it creates an activation that occurs way past the point where it's at all useful. And so in a way it gets stuck. It's like it's unmetabolized. That's one way to think about it. It's not properly digested. Mm. So I often use food equations when I'm explaining things. Mm -hmm. It's like if you give a starving person a steak, there's probably going to be some cramping. There's going to be some discomfort uh, because that would overwhelm the person's digestive system at that point. Just like trauma overwhelms the brain at the point that it occurs in terms of those parts of the brain that that uh, PTSD symptoms show up in, which again are the emotional centers and the physical sensation centers of the brain. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. It sounds so simple and clear when it's explained clinically, you know, but then you've seen how difficult the work can be and how for some people it is years of their life trying to um, just get not the sense of that everything's always okay, but that they can function, that they can, I always think about, you know, living out their potential doing what, what they're able to do and not being held back from their own achievements in life. Yeah. Yeah, that's always, that's always so hard, isn't it? Mm. Whether it's addiction or trauma or any, anything else. I mean, yeah. you know, even physical illness. It, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's part of the human condition, but it's also very um, tragic. Absolutely. We talked earlier about addiction and, and people being labeled as having died of a heart attack and I pictured just about every musician that died in the 60s I think I think like on Jim Morrison's death certificate I think they put heart attack and I think they did it for a lot of them but you know would there be probably the more famous or the more rich you are the more likely the, the hmm. actual diagnosis of your death does not get stated if it's involving an overdose interesting just a thought <laughs> Oh, that's an interesting point. You'd think there'd be some place where social status doesn't have an effect on, on science, but we're, we're social creatures at the end of the day, I guess. Um, so many more questions. We've, hit, we've gone past an hour. Do you have a few more minutes? Just a few. Okay. I always like to ask people about the healing power of, uh, of creativity and art because we're a, you know, an organization based on a musician. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how you've seen art and creativity as a positive force in people's lives? Well, I, I have used art. Uh, I have had some training and background in art. It was part of a double major. I was one class short of an art major. Oh, wow. But I have used uh, and taught art therapy to inner city kids. And... I have taught uh, through the Joslin Art Museum, children's art. That's a, so I'm big on art, and actually with EMDR therapy, I use art a lot because depending on the age of the child, they may not be able to put things into coherent statements, but they can draw. So I can have children draw what happened. I can have them draw their family, and I can learn so much about their connections with each family member. And it has been a powerful intervention tool to help in the diagnosis and treatment of children, especially. But on, on a more general scale, I think of art and music as being the balm. That's B-A-L-M. Yeah, <laughs> the, not the bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it's like... Yeah. It's, it's like what energizes us, it's what relaxes us, 
it can be used in so many different ways as a self-soothing technique, but it can also be used to energize a person. So where would we be without our art? Where would we be without our music? Mm. Where would we be without the creative types in this world? Yep. Absolutely. Well, that's what we're all about at we the Carnegie Foundation. We would be the poorer for it. For, for sure. For sure we would. So I'm going to ask you one last question, and then I'll let you get back to your practice. In the trenches here, um, when you talk about people recovering with EMDR, um, it makes me wonder if they build, if this has even been studied, if they build a stronger tolerance for future trauma because they've got that better you know, more filled out toolbox now? Absolutely, they really? do. And the, the answer is absolutely. So and that's been researched? Yes. And the reason for that is you, are, you strengthen that resilience within a person by doing the work. So one of the things we know is that if you have a single trauma, it takes you a certain amount of time to get back into your window of tolerance. If you have a second trauma, you get back into the window of tolerance, but you're a little higher up. With that third trauma, you, your resting state is actually higher. And pretty soon with multiple traumas, the, you go, as you settle in, you're outside the window of tolerance itself. So by intervening on that, by processing the earlier traumas, you then build up strength because you are able to allow people or people are able to experience getting back into the actual window of tolerance rather than being outside of it when, even when their trauma settles in a bit. Mm. You follow that? Yeah. The window of tolerance thing I'm trying to keep up on, I understand being too high. Yeah. What does the too low part mean? Walk me through that again. Well, when you're too low, you can get uh, sleepy. So, for example, some people will say that they sleep 13 hours a day, 15 hours a day. That can be one form of it. Vegetative depression can be another form of it. Okay, that was the activation thing we were talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the numbing. Yeah. So that's where you see it a lot with eating disorders. You, you see people on the lower side where they've dropped out of the window of tolerance because food is being used to numb. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well... I will leave the last comments to you. I'm honored that you've given me this time, especially out of the blue on a cold call. I appreciate it. We didn't know each other through anyone uh, really in my network. You're kind of, I think, three degrees separated from someone I originally asked to help connect me with psychologists and folks. So thank you so much for your time. Anything else you want to share with uh, survivors out there listening, maybe people wondering, um, should I even go out and get help or should I mention this to a friend or anything? Final comments, it's all yours. Well, I believe in human beings' capacity to heal and over a broad spectrum of people, events, life experiences, and time, I only have come to believe that stronger. So I'll leave you with that. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully this hasn't been too painful. <laughs> Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is from Amplified!